You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. You're going to need something to write on, something to write with, because we've got some good stuff this morning in Isaiah to to dig through. Um, And you can start with this. Well, you can start with July 11th. I need to bring my lunch to worship. That's what you can start there. Um, But um, I want you to start with this line. This is the whole message in one line. Worship is a subversive act of hope. Worship is a subversive act of hope. That's the message today. That's the point. Worship inspires hope, is an act of hope. I go so far as to say it is a subversive act of hope, and I'm going to help you understand what I mean by that. If, if subversive behavior is any act that undermines the authority of a governing body, then worship of the God of the Bible is a subversive act that undermines the authority of the powers and principalities that are trying to rule this world. Does that make sense? That makes sense? Worship is a subversive act of hope. Let's put it in terms that you can, or or more concrete terms. Who in here has been told by your doctor that uh, you need to stop eating sugar or salt or varsity hot dogs or whatever it is you eat but shouldn't. Who in here has had that conversation with your doctor? Yeah. And, and, and you were there when he said it and you heard that if you don't stop, you'll end up with some diabolical illness that will destroy your liver and, and that, or your heart. And that was being told to you by someone whose authority you respect. So you promised you'd quit and you went home from there believing, believing You would follow through on that promise, but who are we kidding, right? Within a week, you were buying a dozen donuts or a bag of chips and and Mountain Dew. Who in here can testify? Who in here can testify? Yeah. Yeah, the rest of you are just in denial. Um, So that's a subversive act. It is an act that subverts the authority of your doctor's advice. Who among us has been told that if you don't stop smoking or... Don't stop sitting too long in one place. You, you know, sitting now is the new smoking for your body. It actually is. Yeah, or, or going without sleep or working fewer hours or whatever it is that you do but you shouldn't do. Who among us has been told that if you don't stop doing those things, you might as well leave the office and go straight to the morgue because you are digging your own grave. And it was told to you by a voice you respect and, and, and who you've given authority to over your health, and you heard it, and you promised, and you went there really believing you would do it, sufficiently convicted, but next morning you got up, or you didn't, <laughs> and, and you went on back to your life as usual. Maybe you felt a little guilty, but no real change. Who in here can testify? Yeah, yeah. That too is it's passive resistance to what is good for us. So that kind of subversion is sort of a negative subversion. It's, 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 the, it's the negative sense of that term. And, and actually, that's the sound of chapters 18 through 24 of Isaiah. These chapters are like a doctor's office. There, there's one unhealthy patient after the next presenting with clear symptoms of spiritual illness. Jerusalem, Moab, Damascus, Israel, Ethiopia, Egypt, 
Babylon, Tyre, every one of these regions presenting in the great physician's office with some serious chronic illness, spiritual amnesia, contentious spirit, weak faith, strong pride. Pride was a big one. And they'd come into the office of the great physician with these symptoms, and he'd tell them, listen, you're killing yourself. Pride is a killer. Self-sufficiency is a killer. Disobedience is a killer. And if you don't change, you'll destroy yourself. And they'd hear it. They'd hear it, but not hear it. You know what I mean? Like you, when someone says that a, that a bag of bargain chips is not a single serving size. <laughs> you keep doing that, you'll destroy yourselves, says the great physician. That's Isaiah's prophecy to every one of these cities. In Isaiah, they're told, listen, disobedience is a killer. You may think you're getting away with it. Because the consequences at first seem like victory. You know, I feel good about myself right this minute after I've eaten a whole box of Twinkies. Um, you're, but, but, you know, and, and he, would say, he would say things like this to them. This is around chapter 21. You say, you know, you're building reservoirs inside your walls and you're feeling really good about yourself and your own self-sufficiency. But you have no regard for the one who makes the water. You have no regard for the one who planned it long ago. You've missed it. And Isaiah has to deliver these prophecies to these cities and city-states and regions. And, and he turns out he's proven right. Every city, single city and region against which he prophesies is ultimately brought down. And then in chapter 24, we find out that all these cities and regions, they're just signs and symbols of what is to come for the whole world. Eventually, the world will be destroyed by its own disobedience and defiled by its people who have disobeyed its laws, broken its covenant, and the end of it, oh, Isaiah gives the saddest news of all. The joy is gone. Isn't that so sad? No joy. Tambourines stilled, revelers stopped, the joyful harp silenced, the party is over, the joy is gone. That's how chapter 24 kind of dumps it all into that extremely sad place. And then, and then, same chapter, verse 14, we're told that in the midst of this devastation, there is a sliver of hope. Just a sliver. It shows up as a subversive act of joy-filled worship. Some people, he says, some people, we don't even know who they are. Some people somewhere begin to raise their voices in shouts of joy. They start to claim things like God's majesty and his righteousness. He's creator and judge and redeemer and Lord. He is worth praising. And this little remnant of hope, this little remnant of a people, the sliver of a voice starts to carry until from the very ends of the earth you can hear the praise Glory to the righteous one. In the midst of the devastation, worship is a subversive act of hope. It subverts the powers of this world. 
And that's the sound of that second song that we sang just this morning during the worship time. It's an act of hope in the presence of enemies, in the face of unbelief. We sang worship as a spiritual weapon. And so right now, we're going to sing a little piece of that second song together. You're going to stay seated. I want you to sing, but I want you to listen to the words as you sing. Listen to the subversion that worship creates to the slivers of hope. I raise a as warfare that's what that is this is a refusal to concede defeat to the enemies of Jesus who is in it with me come on who's in it to just to concede defeat to the enemies of 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 fear and unbelief and and poverty or depression sickness or anger it is a conscious choice to claim God's power over all that threatens us, to see God is greater than whatever we're dealing with. That's what you were doing this morning when you were worshiping. Amen. And you thought you were just singing a song. That's how we move into chapter 25 of Isaiah. In the midst of all the devastation, Isaiah tells us there is a witness that exposes the glory of God and it is the witness of worship, a choice to side with the God of angel armies, the one who fights for us. Lord, you are my God, he says. I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness, you need to underline that, perfect faithfulness. You have done wonderful things. You have things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. But strong people will have to honor you, the one thing that remains. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You're the one thing that remains. You have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. That is a glorious vision, isn't it? So the city's been devastated. But notice how Isaiah begins to rebuild. He rebuilds. He says, the cities are laid waste, but you, but you, but you. 
The character of God lasts forever. So the contrast here is between what is mortal and temporary and what is immortal and eternal. The city's been ruined, but God, God is still here. You are perfectly faithful, Isaiah says, verse 1. Perfectly faithful, which means God will never make a promise he cannot keep. Stop and contemplate that for a minute. You parents who have said, we'll see when your kid asks if they can go to the mall. We'll see, which is code for it. Never. The things we say, the things we say and even hope we mean but can't hold on to. God never utters a word he cannot keep. That's an incredible truth. He will never make a plan he can't follow through on. Will never speak a word that is not eternally true. And you do wonderfully, you do wonderful things, he says, verse 1. Wonderful things, which is to say supernatural things, things that inspire awe, defy logic. God is miracle-making, glory-producing. You do things planned long ago. Also, verse 1, which is to say that God keeps his word and his promise and he works from a plan. God is not some random agent kind of working temperamentally like a two-year-old kicking a tantrum. He, he's not a reactive God. He has a plan for this world and for us. And even when I don't see a way through, even when I cannot imagine a way through this hard thing, this how can this possibly turn out okay? He is working. Even when my feelings get in the way of my ability to appreciate what God is doing, he is still carving a way through. Isaiah 21, chapter, chapter 21, verse 22, God says to the people of Jerusalem and all the surrounding region, he says, he says I will place on his shoulder, and by his shoulder he's talking about the coming Messiah, who we know as Jesus. He says, I will place on his shoulder a key to the house of David, and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. You should Find that line in chapter 21 and underline it. That is a huge promise. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. John, in the book of Revelation, draws on that line. You know, Isaiah and John are constantly talking to each other across the Testaments because both of them have their eyes focused on the inbreaking kingdom. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. In other words, if God has promised it, it's a done deal. You can borrow hope on that promise. And I think about the amount of money, trillions of dollars we've spent in the last year to make it through COVID. Future generations will have to pay for that. We are borrowing against other generations in order to get ourselves through this pandemic. And maybe that was uh, unavoidable, but man, I, it's, it's something that will happen. Somebody else will have to pay for us getting through this, right? Take that down to a personal level, a very personal level. Say you decide to eat Twinkies every meal because you like them so much, and you're having a great time in the moment, Enjoying the food that feels good to you in the moment. But you know who you're borrowing from when you do that? You're borrowing from your future self. Today it may be a happy meal for you, but eventually it will catch up to you. So we've borrowed from our future for the sake of being happy today. Does that make sense? 
So the difference between that kind of borrowing and borrowing against the promises of God is that with the promises of God, there is no crash. You hear what I'm saying? We're borrowing from something that will not fail under the weight of the taking. So I can act today like tomorrow's promises are true without penalty because I want you to write this down. Eschatological hope is a limitless resource. Eschatological, that means end times hope, is a limitless resource. Or if you don't want to spell eschatological, write it this way. God's promises are a limitless resource. Any door he opens cannot be shut. Any door he shuts cannot be opened. So I want to ask you a question. And maybe this is a good question for you to write down. And what places in your life are you borrowing from your future self to your own detriment? In other words, in what places in your life are you finding comfort today at tomorrow's expense? What changes do you need to make so you can transfer that debt to the promises of God which never runs out? Yeah. So, Isaiah 25, verses four, uh, verse 4, just listen to this. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm, a shade from the heat. You silence the uproar of foreigners. A heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, on the so- and the song of the ruthless is stilled. And on this mountain, God, you're preparing a feast for us. That's praise in its purest form. That's praise. Focus completely on the character of a good and worthy God. He is perfect and wonderful, a refuge and a shelter. This kind of worship is what we call praise. It is completely God-focused, God-honoring. And that's the spirit of the song that we ended with this morning, Waymaker. So I want you to sing this and just, again, you're just, you're just singing it this time just to hear the words and to internalize them. You are here moving in this place. You are here moving in our midst. I worship you. Stop, you never stop, you never stop, you never stop, you 
a great gift in that promise friends God is perfectly faithful perfectly faithful he will accomplish what he has promised any door he is open no one can shut and praise helps us to focus on his character his bigness his faithfulness look at verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 25 on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats with the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. If he has spoken, friends, he will do it. John Oswalt says that the genius of Hebrew religion is its capacity to weld together the almighty, transcendent creator with an intimate, personal father. You can hear it so clearly in Isaiah's vision of God. The same God who conquered death also tends to my tears which is to say that God is intimately connected to our pain. Psalm 56, 8 says, You have kept count of my tossing. You, you put my tears in your bottle. Is that not? Come on. How stunning is that? Not a tear escapes his notice. He knows both the beautiful and the ugly. He knows the success, successes and failure when you're when you and your spouse get into it one more time and for the first time someone mentions divorce, God keeps count of your tossing. When the test results have come back and they're not what you hope for and you don't know what to do next, God hears your groaning, knows your tears. When you find out they are watching your every move at work and one more infraction and you're out of there, God... God refuses the disgrace. So I have a question for you. How long has it been since you let someone else wipe your tears? One of the great sins of all those cities and regions that came through the office of the great physician was their self-sufficiency, their pride. How long has it been since you allowed yourself the vulnerability of letting someone else wipe your, your tears. How beautiful to think that God stands ready to tenderly care for yours, knowing every story that every tear tells and not missing one. That's our God, Isaiah tells us. It's our beautiful, faithful, loving God. To worship this God is a subversive act of hope. John tells us in Revelation chapter 21 that this is the reality toward which we're all headed. John, God's dwelling place will be among his people and we will be 
his people and God himself, Revelation 21 verse 4, he says, God, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. That's the vision of the new Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 25 verse 9 begins with this. In that day, you should underline, in that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Moab will be trampled in their land. Straws as straws trampled down in the manure. They will stretch out their hands in it as swimmers stretch out their hands trying to swim out of it. <laughs> but God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground to the very dust. On that day, Isaiah tells us, the perishable will be dust and the imperishable is all that will remain. It's one of the first hints in the Old Testament of the new Jerusalem that John will describe in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. Look at Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God. And the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city and on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, each yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. How will nations get healed ultimately? By the leaves of the tree in the New Jerusalem. There's no human who can ultimately heal a nation. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night. They won't need this, the, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And there's this invitation to you and to me. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I give to each person according to what they've done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift from the water and the tree of life. There will be a tree, John tells us, like he's peering behind the curtain with leaves that heal whole nations. And there will be the face of God exposed and the Lamb, and we will see him. We will see the Lamb. Come on, friends. I need you to get excited right now. It will be rich. We'll find ourselves falling down in front of angels thinking we should worship them. And they'll say, no, no, we're not even the half of it. We'll see the beginning and the end, the whole story laid out. The, 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 all our questions answered. 
and we'll hear the only invitation we ever really wanted to hear. The living word will invite us to the feast with one syllable, come. Inside that room, John says, there will be no more pain, no more waiting, no more death or things that disappoint, every thirst quenched, every hunger filled. We have arrived. That's the substance of our hope. It isn't wishful thinking. It's not some kind of escapism that strains us. This is meat, friends. This is not Twinkies or bags of chips. This is meat. It is gold. It is real. And it is the one and only thing that makes worship worth it. After all else fails, God alone remains, bringing with Him into the new creation the world He has restored and the lives He has redeemed. And that truth leaves us with a choice. Do we trust or do we obsess over things we cannot control? Do we hope or do we despair? You know, last week when I was looking at, I was meditating on Isaiah 25. And I, I found myself so moved by this one phrase in Isaiah 25. It starts in verse 6. On this mountain, I just, I'm moved by that phrase. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will Prepare a feast of rich food for all people. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. I'm moved by that phrase, on this mountain. I wonder, what mountains are waiting for you to stake your claim? You know, I can see myself in that, in that scene that Isaiah paints I can see myself standing on top of a mountain after a long hard climb Cindy had this gorgeous prophetic vision of a team that walked up to the uh, up a mountain they got to that camp just before the summit and they found that summit face was completely covered in ice and there were people who were started, started to claw and, and scrape at the ice to, to clear it so they could get back to the path, but it just didn't work. And eventually, someone had the good idea for everybody just to camp, just wait, just wait. And then the season changed. The ice melted, and they discovered two things. First, that they were stronger for the wait. And second, that if they'd clawed at that ice they would have ruined the path and then they made the summit that kind of that kind of climb that can be hard sometimes that place where you're just before the last uh the last stretch when you don't know how he's working i don't see how you're going to do this god i don't see how you're going to make this happen and then the ice melts the path clears, you make it to the summit, and you stake your claim. You plant your flag. On this mountain, I reclaim my joy. I reclaim my health. I reclaim my faith in humanity. Somebody needs to stake that claim today. 
On this mountain, I reclaim the things that COVID tried to steal. You know, it's the sound of that first song we sang today. I want to ask you to sing this together because we're not going back again. There's no option for going back down the mountain. Sing this together. It's just not who I am. That's worship as thanksgiving. That's worship as proclamation. That's worship as claim staking. Claiming God's best over my life. Friends, that is also worship. It is a subversive act of hope in God's ability to redeem anything, even my own circumstances. And I told you, as I meditated on chapter 25 last week, I noticed that there's all embedded in this chapter, all these proclamations of hope that we can claim over our own lives. So maybe as I rehearse these claims with you this morning, maybe some of you will want to make your stand in one of these proclamations. If, these, if one of these statements resonates, what I want to ask you to do is literally to stand as an act of worship as a subversive act of hope in the God who can restore anything. On this mountain, what will you reclaim? On this mountain, I reclaim my faith in the God of the Bible, and I will renounce all other gods vying for my attention. On this mountain, I will reclaim my strength. On this mountain, I will reclaim my compassion toward the world. Yeah. Yeah. On this mountain, I will let Jesus be my shelter in the storm. On this mountain, I will reclaim God's power to silence the voices that haunt me. On this mountain, I will reclaim my place at God's table. On this mountain, I will enjoy God's plenty. On this mountain, I will enjoy God. On this mountain, I will claim God's power over all that breeds death in my life and in my body. On this mountain, I claim my right to live abundantly. On this mountain, I give God my tears. On this mountain, I give God my disgrace. On this mountain, I claim that God can be trusted. On this mountain, I will rejoice and be glad in God's salvation. On this mountain, I will welcome the hand of the Lord when it rests on me. 
And on this mountain, I will let God wipe away my tears. I will let God deal with my enemies and with those I struggle to love. On this mountain, I surrender my pride and self-sufficiency. On this mountain, I surrender my walls to God and I invite Him to bring them down. On this mountain, I surrender my hold on things that turn to dust and I claim my right to all that is eternal. I claim my right to all that is eternal. On this mountain, I will wake up to the glories of God. On this mountain, I reclaim my joy. On this Independence Day, I reclaim my freedom in Christ. Come on, friends. Come on. What he opens, no man can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I won't go back again. I won't go back again. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.